This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Hello, my dear citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I want to read to you an article from, the beginning at least of an article, from a magazine called The New Yorker. Did they have The New Yorker in 1800? Probably not, right? Well, the only New Yorker I had was Aaron Burr. (laughs) This is a magazine, and under the heading The Critics, an article begins this way. I want to read a passage to you, and then I want you to comment on it. It begins this way. The Titanic sank on April 15, 1912. Nine days later, Thomas Hardy composed a poem about the disaster called The Convergence of the Twain. Many poets were mourning the dead. Hardy took a different approach. He asked readers to contemplate the accident's prehistory, to imagine how even as the great ship was being built, the iceberg, its sinister mate, had also been growing. No mortal eye could see the intimate welding of their later history, Hardy wrote, but even so they were bent by paths coincident on being a non-twin halves of one august event. The poem's theory of history as something that unfolds through faded convergences is also a theory of leadership. For leadership to exist, a leader must cross paths with a crisis. An exemplary person must meet her sinister mate. Without an answering crisis, a would-be leader remains just a promising custodian of potential. Imagine Lincoln without the Civil War or FDR without the Depression. Before a leader can pull us out of despair, we have to fall into it. People who fetishize leadership sometimes find themselves longing for crisis. They yearn for emergency, dreaming of a doomsday to be narrowly averted. Last month... Donald Trump's campaign released its first official TV advertisement. The ad features a procession of alarming images, the San Bernardino shooters, a crowd at passport control, the flag of Syria's al-Nusra front, designed to communicate the idea of a country under siege. But the ad does more than stoke fear. It also excites because it suggests that we've arrived at a moment welcoming to the emergence of a strong, electrifying leader. Trump, a voiceover explains, will quickly cut the head off of ISIS and take their oil. By making America's moment of crisis seem as big or huge as possible, Trump makes himself seem more consequential, too. Crises of leadership are the order of the day at the beginning of the 21st century, Elizabeth Samet writes in the Introduction to Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers. And then, Mr. Jefferson, she quotes John Adams, who suggested in a letter to a friend that there was something both undemocratic and unwise about the lionization of leadership. The country won't improve, John Adams wrote, until people begin to consider themselves as the fountain of power. He went on, they must be taught to reverence themselves instead of adoring their servants, their generals, admirals, bishops, and statesmen. It can be dangerous to, to decide that you want to be led. What do you think of that, Mr. Jefferson? Well, I agree with John Adams. He was the second president of the United States and the first vice president and one of the five members of the committee that wrote the Declaration of Independence. And I should say my lifelong friend, this is classical Republican theory, that the people are sovereign, that the people should govern themselves, 
And that any time the people look to a strong leader or yearn for someone to come in on horseback, they're making a, a terrible mistake. They're not seeing their own capacity for self-government, and they're reverting to old habits of wanting a monarch or a man on horseback or a dictator. So I, I applaud John Adams for his sentiments. I, I should say that he, he envied and resented strong leaders like Washington all of his life and wished that he had received more credit from the American people for his own brand of leadership. But but here in this in this statement, he's quoting classical Republican theory about self-government. I thought it was a little ironic, actually, because the founding fathers in the country at the time revered George Washington. You can just imagine that if he wanted to then go invade Canada or do something else, you all probably would have followed. We would have. Washington was, uh, in a sense, a, an outlier that he wanted to be a mild farmer citizen who had been called away from his plow to serve the nation and then would be allowed to go back to his private happiness. But the American people would not let President Washington return. And first he saved the country in war. Then we recruited him from retirement to serve as the president of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Then inevitably he became the first president of the United States to give our new system stability. He wanted to retire after one term. We insisted that he serve for a second term. He was even called out during the Quasi War with France to be the commander of the U.S. Army in case the French invaded the United States. He felt that each time that he was called back as this leader on horseback, that his long-term reputation would be in decline, and he would eventually be seen as a routine politician or a man of ambition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, does this also speak, though, to the amount of power that we vest in the presidency? I, I don't know that I'm clear about that. Maybe the point of the article is also that um, the president shouldn't be that general on a horseback. I, I don't know what your thought on that is. Well, I wasn't. You know, I walked to my inauguration. I wore plain clothing. I greeted visitors, including diplomats, at the White House door myself. I corresponded freely with average Americans, many of whom were from a class well below that of my own in in Virginia. I deliberately made myself more available with less pomp and circumstance than other presidents, you know, who had had levies and uh, rode around in carriages with liveried servants and so on and so on, because I wanted to remind the American people that I was just the first among equals. I was just their temporary leader called to do this one set of tasks. You know, the problem with this conversation is that the people, I think John Adams is right, have never understood that they are sovereign and that any time you turn to a strong leader, you're in effect undercutting your own system of governance. And our Constitution struggled with this. What would the powers of the president be? He had to have some powers, but we didn't want a strong executive. And so a series of compromises were struck. But in the long run, I knew that the legislative branch would get weaker and the executive branch would get stronger until now you have an imperial presidency. But he's operating as an imperial president within a constitution that wanted to make him just a significant national officer. 
I think we also are starting to question the ability of the American people to wisely pick a president. Some people want Hillary Clinton, and one side is aghast at that. They find her not trustworthy. Other people don't like Donald Trump and think the people that would elect him are fools. It makes you begin to doubt, you know, the electorate. Well, yes, I, I think there's something to that. The electorate can only live in a republic as long as they are eternally vigilant and are examining all of the issues themselves and participating in the great decisions of the country. And when the people turn away to bread and circuses or to material happiness and comfort and essentially leave politics to the experts, that's precisely what Mr. Hamilton wanted. He wanted the people to be so comfortable that they couldn't be bothered to pay attention to their destiny. And then strong and I must say, able men like himself would govern on their behalf. That was the hope. It's been the hope yeah. of oligarchs throughout history. Now, but but the flip of that, maybe what we have now, is also a little dismaying. I, I could point out all of the great things about all of the candidates that are still in the race, but for a moment I'll just point out what we all see as their shortcomings. The line is that there's 330 million of us, and this is the best we come up with. Hillary Clinton, who's been in the White House too long already and maybe a pathological liar. Donald Trump, the cartoon businessman. Ted Cruz, the hateful Christian. Marco Rubio, who's way too green for the job. This professor, Bernie Sanders, who is a socialist. 330 million of us. <laughs> and and that's what we've got to choose from. Jeb Bush was in the hunt for a while, and He's weak and mamby-pamby. Uh, John Kasich is still in it, but he can't get any traction for a variety of personal sins. So uh, what is, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what the question here is, Mr. Jefferson, but the idea that the people will decide, um, they, they feel right now like they don't have a lot to choose from in some ways. Well, I will say we did better. So our first president was George Washington, who will be remembered as long as history loves liberty. Then John Adams. John Adams had many issues. Uh, he was um, self-destructive and irascible and cantankerous and so on, but he was a, a brilliant patriot who did more for the American Revolution than almost any other man. Then I was the third president. James Madison, the fourth president, maybe the greatest of all of us, the father of the Constitution, the author of the Bill of Rights, then James Monroe, a pure Virginia patriot, then John Quincy Adams, who was even more brilliant than his father, although even less able to be a popular leader, and then things began to fall apart with Andrew Jackson. The minute Andrew Jackson was elected, he was essentially Donald Trump. He was illiterate. He was a dualist. He was a loudmouth, and during his inauguration, his friends came in from Tennessee and trashed the White House. <laughs> By the way, I have to note, you are so interesting to me when you talk about John Adams, because as much as you revere him and you and he died friends, you, you cannot talk about John Adams that you don't preface it with all of those little things about him that bugged you. Well, they bugged everybody, John. So he was this, <laughs> there was this great man. Everyone understood that he was a very great man. The only he understood better than everybody that he was a great man, and he couldn't stand it that the country didn't just bow to him. And so he writes these diaries that are filled with anger and mean spiritedness and viciousness and attacks on his friends and his enemies and self loathing 
and wondering why he hasn't achieved more in life. And then as president, he was so erratic that Benjamin Franklin said of him, always a good man, occasionally a great man, and not infrequently insane. That's our John Adams. Back to the point, though, that um, we we began at the beginning of this. Maybe John Adams needed a a crisis. Um, Imagine Abraham Lincoln without the Civil War. He would have been maybe a caretaker. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who is not mentioned there, but Roosevelt hated the fact that he didn't have one big national or international crisis. He was always looking for one. Hell, he rode up San Juan Hill looking for adventure, you know? It's so different from me. I wanted eight years of peace and prosperity and agriculture and balanced budgets and winding down the national debt. I mean, what president would not want to serve under a time of harmony and agriculture? Nobody campaigns that way. Nobody campaigns that way. Everybody's pointing to crisis, and some of them are real and some of them exaggerated. You know, we have a financial crisis in this country. The gap between the rich and poor is too great. And so at least Bernie Sanders has used that as his calling card. I think that's legitimate, but I don't know. That's not as sexy as carpet bombing Syria <laughs> or cutting the head off of ISIS and taking their oil or, or forcing a wall on a, on a border nation. You know, Th- Those are the sorts of things that you say, oh, my God, we've got to do something about that. Quick, elect Donald Trump or uh, somebody. You know? You're becoming a great presidential historian. I, I congratulate you. I, I, I may not be your best interview because I stand for everything that is not the politics of 2016. I wanted a quiet administration. I wanted legislative supremacy. I wanted the American people almost to forget that there was a national government at all. I reduced taxes to nothing. There were no internal taxes during my two terms as president. We cut the national debt by 37 Uh, We reduced the size of the Army and the Navy. And in terms of drama, I sent Lewis and Clark all the way to the Pacific. That's drama, is to advance the information of the world, to open new territory by way of exploration, to discover new rivers and mountains, to meet with Indian tribes that have never been met with before. I regard that as glory, not war, exploration. At a rally um, last week, Donald Trump was speaking at the podium and the lights went out in the convention hall and then he said oh that's the media or he made a joke about it he was very quick on his feet and turned it into a laugh and then when the lights came back on he said no no turn the lights out for no other reason other than they were having fun in the dark and he wanted to exert his power again so he said no turn the lights out and he got the crowd to start chanting turn the lights out and eventually the lights went back out they turned the lights off and then everybody cheered because they were standing in the dark Um, maybe that should be your campaign theme if you run in 2016 turn the lights out meaning let's you know, turn the lights out on Washington. Let's bring down the influence of the federal government. Let's just turn the lights out on that whole place, and we'll all go back to being scientists and farmers and whatnot. Well, I, I like that idea. I think it would be more accurate. Blow out the whale oil lamp. Okay. Well, we could think about that, but either way, you get the idea, right? And I think we're on the same page there. Well, I don't. I, I never want to turn the lights out. I, I'm for the enlightenment. I want to to open the windows of the world and bring the light in to 
to shine the light of reason and good sense on all of the obscurities and superstitions and and credulities of the world and to, and to bring about a great age of reason and conversation and good sense and science. So I, I like the idea of, of turning our backs on Washington as the answer to our questions. But I say bring in the light. If you go to my second home, Poplar Forest, it's just a light show. It's octagonal so that there can be more light brought into that structure than any other physical um, capacity that you could possibly imagine or create. So light is the answer in a republic like ours. About Washington, D.C., though, let's just chant after me. Blow out the whale oil lamp. Blow that out the whale ring. Don't you think that has a kind of populist ring? No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Snuff the candle? <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week, President Jefferson. It is my great pleasure, sir. 